Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I am Boomer. I am Allie. And we record across three different cities in the United States of America over the power of the internet to discuss feature films. Uh, for the most part, we've never done shorts on this on these Lanyap episodes before, have we? No, we haven't. You know, I have been thinking about doing the Sundance shorts because they have them all collected at my local art theater. Oh, nice. And I think I might have mentioned a couple shorts that I watched on Shudder, but it has been a long time. We did like one special episode of the other podcast that alternates with this one where we talked about only shorts. Did you do a Schwankmeyer for that one? It did not come up. Oh, wow. Because I feel like his shorts are like the ones that I always think about when I think shorts because I don't watch a lot of short movies. I don't know. It's just not a thing. His stuff is actually like weirdly hard to access too. It like is. I think the easiest way to like see his work is to buy it directly from him on Vimeo and these like yeah. relatively expensive packages that are yep. I'm sure worth the money, but you know. Yeah, and like I love his Alice movie. Um but oh, classic. Yeah, it's weirdly hard to find, even though it's pretty well known. That one was on streaming services, various ones for a long time. I yeah, guess he must have closed ranks on it. I'm sure you could find a VHS rip of it on YouTube yeah, right now. I was going to say, it's off and on, depending on when you're looking. Like, I feel like whenever I want to watch it, it's not there. And then whenever right. I don't, it's there. So It's always available when you're not in the mood. Yes. We'll definitely talk about scarcity and what's available to stream later this episode, and maybe how it makes us uh, make impulsive decisions on what to watch for this show. <laughs> 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 but that's the main topic of today. I mentioned that we record in three different cities, but Boomer and I actually were in the same city last weekend. Had a couple nice breakfasts together in New Orleans. It was very nice. Yeah. Had a really good time. I hadn't seen you in person since before the pandemic, so it was very nice. Yeah, yeah. It was wonderful to see, you know, how your house has come along, see you in CC, which was obviously very nice. Um, we were planning to go and try to see a movie together, but the broad wasn't doing its like art picture thing that it normally does on Sundays. Like, I guess they took the month off. And so that's how that happened. And we ended up not getting the chance to go see a movie together, which would have been fun. I mean, beforehand we were talking about it and I was looking at everything that was out and I was like, God, there isn't jack shit in the movie theaters this week. Uh, isn't it at least blockbuster season? And then I realized that there are blockbusters out, Mario and Mermaids and everything, but it's nothing that I have any interest in seeing. So that's how that turned out. I have heard good things about the Spider-Man. I'm trying to get up the enthusiasm to go see another superhero movie that ends on a cliffhanger that you will not see the end of for another year. Right. But all these like five-star reviews are definitely pushing me in that direction. Well, I mean, that first one was very well received. Maybe not necessarily like in my house. Oh, really? Wow. Well, you know, we um we don't like what's his name? The um the white boy rapper with all the tattoos. What is his name? Post Malone? Yes. What does he have to do with Spider-Man? Yeah, like little. No, he was yeah, that he has so multiple little. songs on the original film's soundtrack. And in fact, like the song that is like the amp up song when miles is like falling and he decides to you know not fall and rise instead it's like a really hyped up post malone track that like at least within my like circle was the thing that people were talking about and i was like god it kind of really like i mean it was a fun movie i'm not gonna say that it wasn't and in fact 
at the time, my roommate enjoyed it more than me. And when I brought that up and was like, are we going to go see the sequel? He denied having loved it as much as he did. <laughs> so no, no. I don't know how that's going to go. That Post Malone stink lingers, you know? <laughs> right, right. You can tell what rooms he's it walked would. through. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that was not out whenever I was there. That just came out this weekend, the right. recording. So I, we, we could have gone to see that if it came out a little bit earlier. But Barbie is almost here. Fuck yes. Yeah. There's going to be a new Indiana Jones, which I only recently learned about. But, um, you know, it's got Phoebe Waller-Bridge in it. So it at least has my uh, curiosity. I think she did a jokes write on the script, too. If not, like, actually wrote the whole thing. Well, great. That's wonderful. I would love yeah. to see Fleabag Indiana Jones. <laughs> you know, Crashing was great. Um, I mean, as far as movies that I have seen, uh, you know, when we last recorded, it was right before my birthday. And, you know, when around my birthday, I do like to take a couple of days off and just do some like nice staycation things. And one of them that I did do was go to my local art house theater and see Master Gardener, uh, the new Paul Schrader film which um, I've already sent over copy on, and that has been posted. So if you want to hear my thoughts at length on that, you can go ahead and check that out on swampflix.com. I also did copy on the movie that I sort of half-watched. Well, no, I fully watched it. I I don't think I should ever imply that I don't fully watch any of these films, because really that can give some pedance the wrong idea about, you know, oh, that's why he didn't know Sheila was the wife. But... I watched the movie The Curve from 2000, uh, which is currently on Tubi, starring Matthew Lillard and um, some other guy, and also Carrie Russell. Do do either of you know anything about this movie? No. I. Do you remember it? Do you even remember it coming out? Mm, can't no. say I do, no. Do either of you remember a movie called Dead Man's Curve? That was also this movie. The title was changed to avoid confusion with Dead Man on Campus, which I have not seen. I'm still looking forward to seeing, and which was directed, written and directed by the uh, same people who made Pumpkin. That's Dead Man on Campus. This was called Dead Man's Curve, was uh, released as The Curve to avoid that exact confusion. Very briefly, it is a movie about some students who decide to take advantage of the uh, university policy that allows for a student to take a 4-0. For the semester, if their roommate, you know, trigger warning commits suicide. Uh, so then it becomes this sort of like rope situation where these two men who maybe shouldn't trust each other as much as they do are now on the hook for uh, murder that they're trying to portray as a suicide and things get more complicated from there. Again, like I said in my review of that, whenever it goes out, the real draw here is just to watch Matthew Lillard as a manic pixie nightmare twink just chew the scenery up and down, <laughs> just all over the place, bouncing off the walls as if he is Jim Carrey in the mask. It's a really uh, a delight to see. Um, and then the other thing that I have done a write-up on that has not yet been released was Bong Joon-ho's 2003 film Memories of Murder. <gasps> so good. I really enjoyed it. It's so good. It was, it's very long. Yes. But so is Parasite. So they're tied for my top favorites by him. So really? Yeah. This was my first time seeing it. I loved it. Um, While I was watching it, I kept thinking about like, wow, it's like another world in this movie where 
police brutality is commonplace and Mm -hmm. torture by the police to solicit false confessions is pretty frequent. And then I was like, oh, wait, no, that's not like another world. That's the world that I live in. That's the nation I live in. You know, there are people obviously who are in denial of the extent to which that occurs within our own so-called justice system. But it was like, wow, watching it through another lens was a really like interesting uh, take. And I also really love that as like a crime thriller, it's one where, you know, the crime is never solved. Yeah. Because the real life crime, at least at that time on which it was based at that time, had not yet been solved, although it has been since then, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting. Um, but yeah, I give it a big recommend. And of course, I got that one from my local library. And uh, The Curve is on Tubi, so you can watch either of those without ever having to spend a single cent. Our last two good public institutions. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) I mean, Tubi Tubi might be evil. We don't know. But it doesn't, it's not harming us. I was going to say, if Tubi is evil, I feel like on the scale of things that are uh, evil, it's kind of low. Like, it doesn't really register in the modern day scale of evilness right the most evil thing it does is break up art films with charmin bears yes and Mucinex. which is pretty bad but you know <laughs> yeah it, it could be worse when i did go to see master gardener i also saw a trailer for a new animated film from france which actually um adapts several haruki murakami short stories which longtime listeners and readers of the site will know that like he's one of my favorite uh, writers, one of my favorite novelists. It was fascinating because after The Quake, which was a book that he wrote in the early 2000s, there are elements of various like things that happened after contemporary, you know, early 2000s uh, earthquakes. But this film is set in 2011 specifically after the earthquakes and tsunamis that took place in Japan in that year. So the fact that some of these stories are, quote, after the quake uh, becomes a little confusing if you're a reader of his because it moves stories that happened earlier in his career. And in fact, like earlier in like, you know, this millennium, this century to a later date. And it doesn't necessarily change certain things that might theoretically change as the result of that. And it sort of uh, compiles them into happening to, you know, certain uh, people who exist in different stories. Sorry to break you up, but you didn't say the title yet. Is this uh, Blind Willow, Sleeping Woman? Yes, this is Blind Willow, Sleeping Woman. Sorry. I've been wanting to see this. I'm I'm very jealous that you got to see it. Yeah, I went and saw it yesterday, and it was good. Um, It was one of those things where... Unfortunately, it was the middle of the afternoon. So like I was it was right or it started right around what would have been like an ideal nap time. Like, so for the first like 20 minutes of it, I was like really struggling to stay awake. And then it like really picked up from there. Um, If you're like a Murakami fan, you know that many of his short stories have like unnamed first person narrators. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I'm, I have a copy of one of his collections from the library right now that is called First Person Singular, where it's it's all different you know stories that you presume are not from the point of view of the same person, like impossibly so, but they're all told from a like you know first person narrative perspective in a way that like you know uh, really highlights that as a a form that he uses. So 
if you if you've read any Murakami before, you also probably know that there are some like short stories that eventually made their way into kind of being parts of novelizations. So there's one short story that I believe is from the collection The Elephant Vanishes, but I didn't have time to look it up before we you know got together today. Uh, about a guy who goes searching for his cat. Yeah, that one that makes its way into Wind Up Bird. Crime. Yeah, and so that is one of the stories that's in this film. And the narrator of that is like someone who works with and alongside a character uh, from another short story uh, called the frog from the collection, or at least it's about a frog from the collection um, after the quake. So it's like combining several of these short stories that they're all about um, individual characters who at least tangentially know each other, which makes for an interesting like adaptational um, element. And I thought it was pretty fun. And um, I'll be doing copy on that because, you know, it's a new film. It came out this year. Obviously, we always are trying to do at least copy on the things that we see that are new so that we have something to refer back to when we do our end of the year list. And even though it's not even quite the midpoint of the year, I'm, I'm pretty sure that this one will end up somewhere on that list, even if it's not really super close to the top. Did you happen to see Drive My Car when it was, like won the Oscar a couple years ago? I didn't. And that's... In fact, until I like looked up this movie, I didn't even realize that was a Murakami adaptation. The last one that I knew of was, of course, Burning when it came out about five oh, years yeah. ago. I went and saw that one, but I had no idea that Drive My Car was a Murakami adaptation until like this week. It did a pretty good job of like expanding a short story into a three-hour, you know, very quiet drama, and. I, I think it's always better to adapt a short story because there's like a lot of room for interpretation and expansion instead of like trying to cram every detail of a novel into a movie. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought it was a pretty good one too. I felt that way when I saw Burning because Burning is a yeah. very short, yeah. you know, short story and it added a lot of elements, but they were still very, very Murakami elements. Like I was sitting there in the theater and in my mind I was playing like Murakami bingo. <laughs> um, and I was like, I just need somebody to mention a well. I just need somebody to mention that <laughs> yes. I've fallen in a well. And then, you know, the woman in that film talks about how when she was a child, she fell into a well in the neighborhood, you know, and I was like, yep, Murakami bingo. <laughs> Looking for cats, swimming in public pools, <laughs> making oneself a humble meal. You know, those are all the elements of his stories. They're, you know, and somehow they manage to not be very repetitive, even when they end up repeated, as in the one about the the search for the cat named uh, Watanabe. And then the last two things that I, I saw that I, uh, one of them you already did copy on, Brandon, when it was new, and I um, enjoyed it more than you did, uh, was Kong Skull Island. I saw that when I was visiting my parents and you know what? I really enjoyed it a lot more than you did. It seems like, and I, I read your review and I don't disagree with anything that you said about it. I know that's been a few years. Do you have any memory of the film or what your thoughts on it were? Uh, I think it was just a problem of like genre preference where like it was very much a pastiche of Vietnam protest films and like throwing back to like the seventies and eighties, like platoon and, uh, Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now style, like, yeah, Vietnam regurgitation. I can already hear the helicopter blades and, like, CCR uh, <laughs> breaking up the feed right now. Um, yeah. So it was, like, a genre pastiche of a genre that kind of bores me. But a lot of the, like, stuff that I thought was fun and, like, the monster movie action in it was, like, carried over to, what was it, Godzilla versus Kong, like, there was a lot of promising, fun kaiju action in that, like, carried over into the sequel 
So maybe I even appreciate it more in retrospect because it was like a sign of a better direction for that series. Mm. The sequel I thought was fun. Uh, I, I liked it more than Kong Skull Island by itself. I really enjoyed this one in isolation. You know, I didn't see the Godzilla movie, like the English Godzilla movie that came out in 2014. Oh, such this a is like a prequel to. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what I remember you saying. And that's what I remember being like the critical consensus at the time. And so that was also during a period of time when I was working like 80 hours a week trying to save money to move. Um, so I never saw it. And then this one came out like the summer before Movie Pass summer. <laughs> When, like, (laughs) I didn't really go to see much at all. Um, And so it came out in 2017. Uh, My parents had it for some reason. They had DVR'd it. And it was, I really enjoyed it. I liked all of the, actually, as someone who doesn't, I'm with you. I'm with you in that, like, generally Vietnam movies bore me. I find war movies very boring in general. And Vietnam ones in particular uh, do seem to all kind of have the same message. Like they all have individual strong elements to them. Like one of the things that I've noticed when I'm watching all of these old episodes of uh, Siskel and Ebert is that they loved Vietnam movies. Like Deer Hunter, for them, once they saw that, that became like a gold standard that they compared many movies to over the course of the next several months and even years. It's definitely a generational thing, like the way that like MASH was such a cultural moment because it was... yes. You know, processing Vietnam stuff through the Korean War. Yes. You know, device. Like, I don't think that would matter in any other era. It just, like, hit that generation very hard. Right. And I think that because that's sort of our parents' generation, that that being such a defining film that, like, sort of genre or subgenre that we did not emotionally connect to as people who did not live through it don't have the same connection to so that might be why it's kind of like boring and dull to watch those now even the ones that are like great pieces of cinema you know i feel the same way about westerns like i think that you know the good the bad and the ugly is a great movie but also in general i think westerns are very boring they're very difficult for me to get through um this one i really enjoyed all of the performances um i really enjoyed uh samuel l jackson as like the sort of like ahab heart of darkness you know mashup that was super fun and then the performances from the other characters i really enjoyed in particular like the young uh, marine played by thomas mann i found very endearing and i generally am not always a huge fan of uh, john c Riley. sometimes i find his humor very difficult to like enjoy and follow but he was great in this movie as the comic relief and the monster fights to me were a lot of fun. And also just like, there's some like real, like nonsensical quote unquote badass action scenes in this one that normally I might find kind of like goofy and like nonsensical, but because they're in this movie, which is Kong skull Island, I ended up really enjoying them. Like there's a scene where Tom Hiddleston is wearing like a gas mask and he's fighting like tiny pteranodons with like a sword and i'm like this should be ridiculous i shouldn't be enjoying this as much as i am but i I definitely uh, did end up enjoying it so kong skull island that's like the perfect saturday afternoon afternoon movie it kind of seems like you know like he just had a big lunch it's too hot to go outside and do anything right now you gotta wait for the cool of the day to return oh kong skull islands on sci-fi channel great like that's my recommendation for it I really, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, and then last, but certainly not least, another Tubi favorite. I watched uh, 1996's Dragonheart. Oh, uh, wow. Do we have any feelings about Dragonheart? 
I only remember the Sean Connery voice coming out of the dragon. Yeah, no other details yeah, are coming that's through the here. Only detail. It's actually really cute. It's fun. I mean, it has like a mixed tone that I think can make it maybe not everyone's favorite. But um, for our listeners who somehow uh, don't know it, and if they don't have access to Tubi to read the summary and the cast list, it's Dennis Quaid as this man who is like a a knight in the chivalric like sense. You know, he has an oath to the the you know order of the knights, and he is the sort of tutor and mentor of a young prince whose father is like a cruel, slavish, you know, brutish dictator, um, you know, somewhere in like uh, Northwest Europe in the, you know, 10th century. Uh, the father dies, and then the young prince almost dies. And so Dennis Quaid and the boy's mother take him to see Sean Connery Dragon in the hopes that by, you know, within this world, their mysticism and their, you know, legacy includes the fact that dragons can like split their hearts in half and give their half a heart to like a human and then it bonds them. So in the hopes of like creating a, you know, this new prince who is now the king of this, wherever this is, and the hopes of making him better, stronger, you know, more just and loyal than his father, they give him this like dragon half heart and it does bond him to the Sean Connery dragon. But as it turns out, you know, the boy is rotten to his core. So he grows up to be a horrible King played by um, David Thewlis. And uh, now Dennis Quaid Knight has been like, just sort of wandering around slaying dragons. And now they're down to the last dragon, which he somehow does not recognize as the same Sean Connery dragon that he met years before. And the two of them deciding to first try to make some money and then uh, maybe making things right within the kingdom. Um, it's on Tubi. It's very fun. Uh, I remember this as a movie that was like constantly on the sci-fi channel. Yeah. Like during the 90s, the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, so it's a movie that I know that I must have seen in its entirety before. But it didn't really like it didn't stick out in my memory. And I was still consistently surprised by some of the twists in it. Again, it's on Tubi, so it's free. If you feel like watching it, Dennis Quaid, Sean Connery, Dragon, Dragonheart, I give it a recommendation. I just looked up on Wikipedia because I was sure, you know, this must have continued on in sequels. Uh, There are three direct-to-video prequels to Dragonheart. The most recent one came out in 2020. What? It's called Dragonheart Vengeance, and it features, among other people, an ice-breathing dragon voiced by helena bottom carter yeah <laughs> there's a lot of information to take in yeah it's yeah. this is the Tubi, the sci-fi channel late 90s early 2000s to Tubi pipeline yes. it's the same sort of deal that they had with dark man where they will show the original which is a pretty great movie and then both of its like direct-to-video sequels in like an evening as part of like a six hour block, which they used to do on sci-fi channel during that time period. And now just like with Wishmaster, which we talked about whenever we watched it. And again, with dark man, whenever, you know, we talked about that briefly, that's like the pipeline here. Um, there was a huge gap between some of those sequels, like 15 years. Whenever, yeah. uh, my friend that I was watching it with looked it up and he was like, oh, it's a franchise. I was like, no, it's not. And yeah, as it turns out, there are multiple sequels. And of course, 
as with many things on Tubi, if you don't stop it before, you know, when the movie <laughs> ends, it will uh, autoplay to the first direct sequel. So I watched the first, I don't know, 15 minutes of that. Uh, I was fine. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. It certainly was no Dragonheart 1996. Wasn't there like another dragon movie around the same time? Or am I thinking of this one? The only thing that I can think of is Dragon Slayer, which came out in the late 80s. Mm. Okay. And Reign of Fire in the late 90s. Okay, Reign of Fire. Yeah, Reign of Fire was, is the one would have I'm been 2001. Of, yeah. Okay. I remember going to see that one with, with my mom for like my 14th, like around my 14th birthday or something. So good dragon age. Yeah, good time for dragons, you know, until the second, until the most recent dragon renaissance was also ended very poorly. <laughs> um, but yeah. That is what I have been watching. I know it's a long rundown. I'm sure some of that will get cut. But but Allie, what have, what have you been watching? Not nearly as much as you have, but I did watch a couple of things. Um, in my ongoing effort to catch up with things I missed last year, you know, at the half point of this year, <laughs> I uh, finally went and watched the Bob's Burgers movie. Nice. Yeah, so, you know, it plays off of the TV show, Bob's Burger Family, running a burger restaurant in their typical, you know, financial shambles and trying to dig themselves out of that in this. Um, you know, there are a lot of parts of it that were cute and funny, but I think the biggest thing that I disliked about it is it just felt very, like, dire. You know, like, they definitely, like, piled on the, like, very serious financial consequences, whereas, like, in the show, it's always played kind of, like, lightheartedly as a joke. They tried to up the stakes a little too much. Yeah, that's what I feel about it, anyway. And much like we were talking about um, with Pinocchio from last year, I didn't think any of those songs were nearly as good as the songs that are on the show proper. It's kind of weird, too, because, like, there weren't enough songs, like... Also, like in Pinocchio, like they're kind of sporadic, but it's not like the movie's a full-on movie musical the way you would yeah. expect it to be. Yeah, there weren't enough songs, and there weren't enough like parody songs because I feel like that's a big thing in the show. You know, you'll have Boys for Now um, doing their parody like boy band, zombie Halloween song, and things like that. You know, it I liked it, but you know, well enough. Um, I'm always gonna prefer watching the show but it officially means that i have seen like all of the bob's burgers media which is like a really weird realization for me i'm like this show is in the 13th season and i have seen all of the episodes and the movie and i don't know how to feel about that i find it impossible to keep up with personally yeah like i really enjoy the show mm -hmm. and then i'll forget it exists when it goes off air between seasons yeah and then all of a sudden i'm behind like 16 episodes by the time i oh remember my God. and i never yeah. catch up like while they're airing yeah it's also strange because you know i still think of that as like the newcomer to like the I fox know. animated lineup but no it's been 13 yes, seasons it's been so long well family guy's been on for half a century so it's got a lot of catching uh, up to do. Yeah, it'll never outpace The Simpsons. I was gonna nope. say, and that, and and you know, I would have thought that was a beautiful promise in my youth, and now it's a harrowing curse. <laughs> Make it <Yeah>. stop! <laughs> it's already stop, dead. Stop! It's already dead. <laughs> I just think it's you know that like that nice like comforting you know I can sit down in the middle of the week and I have a funny thing to watch on television. I'll have to think. Perfect. And they still hit new strides, like, uh, I don't know, I remember, like, a recent episode, 
will just like hit you in the right way. And yes. it's like, oh yeah, this show still got it. But I'm trying to think of like what one. Oh, I just watched the one recently that's like an April Fool's episode. Mr. Fish Odor oh, is trying yes. to trick Bob into tricking him for April Fool's Day. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah, this show like kind of coasts sometimes, mm-hmm. but every now and then it's still like just as good as it was the first season. Yeah. Uh, so that, it hasn't gotten stale yet. And it's been a while. Like, I think this movie came out during the pandemic, it but did, I remember yeah. getting really emotional about Luis's journey yes. in the movie. Oh. And yeah. I also thought they did a good job adding depth to the animation. They like, did. there's a lot of like shadows. Say, the animation looked really good for. You know, yeah. I feel like a lot of, you know, modern kind of 2D animated movies, they kind of, like, they utilize, you know, sort of the CG with the hand-drawn, and it looks terrible. But I thought this looked really well, really good, and, you know, I had fun with it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it was like a nice, you know, I'm stressed out with school, I'm gonna lay down and watch a movie sort of movie. And I also like that, you know, they brought back... Little King Trashmouth, the raccoon, briefly for a scene because we hadn't heard from Little King Trashmouth in a while. And then on the opposite end of the cuddly comfort movie scale, <laughs> I watched this movie called Kanoa, A Shameful History. It's from 1976. So it's this Mexican movie and it's based off of. A true story, which is part of what makes it like so freaking like harrowing. Um, so in 1968, um, Mexico was gonna host the Olympics, and there were a lot of protests about it, and a lot of student protests in general were happening during that time. And these five uh, University of Puebla employees, like they go out to the small town to go climb a mountain for like a break, and the people in the small town, like, their only exposure to anything is through, like, their priests. And the priests are, like, you know, extolling godliness and, like, condemning, you know, communism and student riots and all of these things. All of the same, you know, rhetoric we hear today, unfortunately. Yeah, and which was present in Memories of Murder as well. Yes, Yes, it was. a big part of that one in a way that people, that I was not expecting. Anyway, the townsfolk um, see these people from a university who are not students. You know, they are workers. They are not the ones protesting. They see these employees from a university and they're like, oh no, the riots are coming here to our small town. Which, once again, is something we... <laughs> here today which is why it's right. so horrible um and basically they form a mob and attack these five people with like sticks and machetes and this is a real story unfortunately and two of them were killed so you know the beginning of the movie starts with that subtitle like telling you exactly what's going to happen. So you know what the events of this movie are. So in some ways it feels like a horror movie because it's like watching these people make these choices and you know what's going to happen. You know, it's very like, don't go in the basement. You know, don't go climb the mountain. No, the small town people, don't talk to them about that. No, you know. Um, And so it builds that tension. And it also kind of has like this weird faux documentary thing going on because there's like this faux like interview going on with 
basically this guy from the town who's telling you all about like the elements like okay these people are illiterate and a lot of them didn't even speak like spanish they they speak Nahuatl, which is the local language so yeah they're getting all of their information all of their news filtered through this priest and yeah it's like a really good movie but it's definitely vegetables this movie is vegetables right, to yeah. the extreme and like i really liked it i really thought it was enjoyable in the way of like how do you categorize this movie you know and i thought the politics of it were really interesting because you know it's showing a lot of the townsfolk's sides so it's not exactly condemning them all the way more than it's condemning these structures at play so mm-hmm. i thought that was really really cool but yeah, I recommend it if you're feeling like vegetables and you want vegetables that vaguely feel like a horror movie, but also it's like a bummer. It's a real feel bad story. Right. And this is this is like a a recreation, right? It's not a documentary. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's not a documentary, but they have like a fake documentary like style to it oh, okay. as well as, you know, watching this recreation and following the whole timeline of all of the decisions that led up to right. the tragedy they meet. So that's uh, that's what I've been watching is a feel-good movie and a feel-bad movie. So now I need a middle a middle movie. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, you watch any any of those middle movies? Well, I have been watching the opposite of Eat Your Vegetables. I've been watching like Pure Candy. The last like great theatrical experience I had. And maybe the first one in a good while was uh, I went to go see the one night only Fathom event screening of Shin Kamen Rider, which is the newest film in Hideaki Anno's revival of all these tokusatsu Japanese properties, uh, starting with Shin Godzilla, I believe in like 2016, 2017. And then it screened in Japan last year, but I saw the Fathom event screening of Shin Ultraman this January. Uh, so it hit America this year. And those two are better than Shin Kamen Rider, but I've been like excited to keep going back to this very loosely connected series of films. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of the movies so far. I saw Shin Godzilla, which was great. Yeah, I yeah. also saw Shin Godzilla and I loved it, yeah. Well, here's the thing. It's like both daunting and not daunting at all because you would think based on like, they're calling it the Shin Japan Heroes Universe, that they're building this like Marvel-style interconnected web of all these different Japanese superheroes and, I guess in Godzilla's case, supervillains that then turned into heroes to children everywhere later in their, their series. They're, you know, putting this Shin label on each of these movies, and they're all from the same creative mind, but they're not really connected. The uh, missing piece I have not mentioned yet is that somehow uh, the latest quote-unquote rebuild of Neon Genesis Evangelion is also included in this series, uh, which, wow. I, which I have not seen. But the reason that it's allowed to be connected, even though that's animated and the rest of these are live action with a lot of CGI, is that they're never going to cross over. They're all individual, kind of like love letters to each property. And mm-hmm. they're only crossing over in these really absurd television commercials for action figures, which I highly recommend you seek out if you've not seen them. But it's like all of these heroes that should not share the screen, like 
one of those <laughs> mech suit angels from Evangelion running alongside Godzilla and then joining oh. forces with his body in this that, like though. you know Megazord Power Rangers arrangement. Uh, it's fucking insane. And if I were eight years old, it would melt my little brain. Common Rider is this like 50th anniversary celebration of a TV show called Common Rider. If you're unfamiliar with the character, he is a cyborg bug man. He is half grasshopper, half cyborg. <laughs> He's got an augmented human body. And basically it's like an eight-year-old's concept of a superhero where it's like, people look cool when they're on motorcycles and their helmets make them look like bugs. What if he actually was a bug man? And that's Kamen Rider. Perfection. It's incredible. Yes. And I, I guess why I'm like a hypocrite about this versus like my exhaustion with the Marvel movies and even, you know, the new Spider-Man, which I was kind of dismissing earlier as something that's like half of a story that won't complete until later, even though I liked the first one in that series, is that it's reminding me of when I was a child and I would watch superhero media on TV and not be expected to know the full scope of the lore all the time. Right. Yeah. I would tune into random episodes of Batman the Animated Series or the X-Men TV show or Or the Common Rider TV show that was on Fox Kids when we were young, even. I don't remember that, but I do know that like Power Rangers is the equivalent of this Tokusatsu thing that we were exposed to. Right. It was in that like post Power Rangers era where they were like, oh, Power Rangers is extremely successful and extremely cheap to make. So they made like VR Troopers, which actually combined two separate like Metal Hero uh, TV shows into one big bad Beetleborgs. And I think Kamen Rider was the one that that was like maybe moderately successful, but didn't last very long. Like it didn't connect with like the the youth of America the way that the Power Rangers did. This feels like tuning into an entire season of one of those types of series. But, like, you missed the first three episodes and you barely know what's going on. And it, it's not going to slow down to t- let you know. And back then, we didn't control what we would access. You know, like, if you missed a Saturday and you missed a piece of that puzzle, it's unlikely you would have been able to, like, rent it on videotape the next mm-hmm. week. You know, you kind of just have right, to, like... Right. There's a uh, continued adventures of template to that style of storytelling that made it so that if you know common writer's general deal it's okay that you don't have your bearings in the larger story there's like an episodic quality where it's like well he'll get out of this jam and next week fight another rubber monster it doesn't really matter where that fits in with his larger story unless you're like a a deeply incurable nerd which we all are and i'm not gonna claim that i'm not but well not apologize (laughs) this stuff doesn't really matter as much as like the in the moment pleasures of watching this bug man beat up other insectoid cyborgs, uh, which in this movie, he beats up a augmented Batman who uh, wears a lab coat and tries to infect the world with a COVID type disease. Uh, and there's also a, I want to say there's like a wasp woman and there's a half chameleon, half mantis cyborg <laughs> that he fights. It's like just pure candy pedal to the floor skips the origin story part of it so you're kind of like full throttle thrown into this hero's conflicted nature where he's like he's augmented to kill so like whenever he's fighting all these baddies he just like goes into full ultra violence mode 
And then he has those um, classic Evangelion Anno moments where, like, after the kills are over, he, like, looks at the blood dripping off the black leather biker gloves. And he's like, what have I done? What am I capable of? I'm so ashamed. Uh, and he keeps going back and forth from killing and feeling bad about killing. It's a little more grim than uh, Shin Ultraman, which I think is maybe my favorite of the three. Because that one's, like, pure 60s kitsch and is, like, almost psychedelic and how much of it's a throwback to that era of kaiju and uh tokusatsu filmmaking and then you know shin godzilla is the smartest of the three movies like that one's a pretty incisive satire about the inefficiency of bureaucracy in facing any large-scale problem and how like yeah our own style of government is very anti-people in a way Mm -hmm. uh shin ultraman was very uh, humanist and like celebrates the people's resilience in spite of government's inefficiency. And then Shin Kamen Rider is very standard, I think, superhero stuff, especially if you've ever seen a Batman movie before. Just that gloomy, you know, what have I become moping between kills is a uh, very familiar territory for this genre. But I don't know. I, I just think it's like really exciting superhero filmmaking and that there's a lot of tactile fight choreography a lot of different over-the-top villains. I mean, it's like Batman, but it's also like if you watched Batman's origin story and then Batman getting Robin and then Robin leaving him and him replacing Robin and then in the process going through defeating Catwoman, the Joker, the Penguin, the Riddler, all in one movie. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, it's everything very quickly and it's all very exciting and... um. They're they're also all shot with this like crazy looking Soderberghian camera. It's all bug eye, wide angle lenses, and in Shin Godzilla and Shin Ultraman, it's all in these like bureaucratic spaces. So that looks very Soderbergh. But in this one, it's out in the field. You know, a lot of it's outdoors because it's this character riding a motorcycle a lot. So it looks like just first person POV. I'm a bug on a motorcycle stuff. Just really fun. And uh, I've also, because I've finally found something to dork out about for the first time in a while, I, I recently watched this other one. And this title is a doozy. Uh, Mega Monster Battle Ultra Galaxy Legends the Movie from 2009. Oh, wow. And this one is basically the Spider-Verse version of an Ultraman movie. This is a sequel to a direct-to-video sequel to a TV show that I have not seen. That was all Ultraman stuff. And I didn't care that I didn't really know what was going on at first. Um, I didn't really care why these characters needed to find the energy core to save their Ultraman planet, which is called Planet Ultra, from being destroyed by this you know, villain. You, know, you don't need much Power Rangers background information to know that Rita Repulsa is evil and any you know, rubber, yeah. rubber suit <laughs> monster she sends to Earth need to be like beaten up. Like It's, it's all pretty straightforward. But what's cool about this is it's set on Planet Ultra. Every character that like has lines and stuff is basically a variation on Ultraman. So like some of the Ultraman helmets have wings or like uh there's like a girl Ultraman that has like pigtails jutting out, but it's like in the metal of the helmet. These pigtails like signifying her femininity. So it's like 50 different Ultramen uh and one of them is evil and finds this comet or meteor or something that's like a graveyard for all of the kaiju that previous Ultramen have already defeated. So it's like this graveyard meteoroid. 
and he raises the ghosts of these kaiju. So all the Ultramen have to fight all of the monsters all at once, uh, which is like very much in this maximalist um, into the Spider-Verse style of like metaverse filmmaking that we've all been watching uh, in the past couple of years with everything everywhere and the uh, live action Spider-Man had its own multiverse storyline recently. Um, I think a lot of the MCU has been delving into that because it allows them to like both push the story forward and dip into like nostalgia pops for audiences who've been along for the ride for decades now. Um, so anyway, I watched this movie on Tubi, as you might expect. <laughs> uh, it reminded me again of why I loved Power Rangers as a kid, which I think Power Rangers has come up the past four episodes in a row. Um, so you can see where my brain is at. And uh, it was just cool to see all of it so quickly funneled into my brain in these two movies. Like they're both very maximalist um, and they're both very unwilling to slow down to like catch you up on the story. It doesn't really matter what you've missed. It's like, you want to see these supermen fight these supervillains in these like strange CGI backdrops. Uh, we're just going to dive right into that pleasure and we're going to hit that pleasure zone over and over and over again until you're numb to it, um, which I have not become numb to it yet. But I imagine if I had been following along with this stuff since the 70s and 80s, um, maybe this wouldn't be as exciting to me. But it feels fresh and new in a way that superhero media hasn't felt to me in a while. Sounds fun. I'm going to be really indulgent and start by reading a tweet uh, that I bookmarked in 2022. It's from a Twitter handle, CJ Prince. Cinephilia is a scam. Like, it starts with, don't watch the new stuff at the multiplex, look harder. And you tried limited release stuff like indies, and then it's not that A24 stuff, look harder. And eventually you're putting hours of effort into finding shit five people are aware of. Uh, which <laughs> I think about a lot. Um, and I think about scarcity in the media I'm watching a lot. And lately I've been locked into what's available in the Criterion channel because they are programming these very obscure, hard-to-find art films. Like, it's just, like, all of a sudden available for a minute, and either you watch it in the couple months window, it's on Criterion Channel, or you're paying $50 for an out-of-print Blu-ray, or you're just never going to see it again. So, the movie I picked for this episode is Flaming Ears from 1992, which was recently restored in 4K by Kino Lorber, and... Like I said, I feel locked into this thing where there are several movies on Criterion Channel right now that I know in my private time, it's going to be a struggle for me to to like make time for it before they disappear this year. And this podcast is like a great impetus for me to finally watch the stuff. Um, I don't know that I would have recommended other people watch this with me had I watched it first. So I, I feel <laughs> like I, I subjected y'all to something in this episode. Yeah, I'll um, let me fill you in, Allie. When we had lunch, when we had breakfast the last day that I was in New Orleans last weekend, Brandon uh, was like, yeah, I I just watched the movie that we're going to be talking about next week. And um, I'm wondering if it's too late to change. And in your defense, Brandon, I was like, (laughs) no, go for it. We should definitely proceed with whatever the movie is that we're, you know, planning to watch already. 
And yeah, <laughs> I actually don't think that this was the worst one that we have seen. So. Oh wow, that's tough to hear because I I generally love what I make y'all watch, uh, and this one I have issues with not on like an artistic level or a political level, just on a basic understanding what I even saw with my eyes and brain. Yes. Which is frustrating. And I, I want to say that it's okay to not understand art films and it's okay not to understand, especially like that Lynchian abstraction where it's like, you know, putting meaning to the events of the film aren't necessarily what's important. Um, you know, trying to like solve the puzzle isn't the end all be all of filmmaking or film watching. And that's fine and all, but like when a movie has a linear plot and you can't understand the events of it, it's very hard to discuss. Yes. That's what I was going to say is I am totally fine watching weird stuff, like very into it. But yeah, I had a hard time with this one because I was like, I don't really know what's going on here. And I don't know why it's bothering me right now. So thank you well, for that. Glad it's not just me. <laughs> since y'all are unprepared, I guess I can describe the plot of this movie because I understood oh. it for once somehow. What? Okay. Y'all, y'all tell me what this movie was about because, like, all I got was survival. Well, I want I want to give the basic sketch of what I understood and see okay, what I'm missing. Right. If you could fill in the the margins, but like, okay, yeah, okay. So this is a um, film made in early '90s Austria by a queer art collective. Um, I believe at the time everyone identified as lesbian, but um, there are several trans men in that collective. Yeah, uh, that have since you know come out. Um, and it's set in this like mostly lesbian future in the year 2700, the year of the toad, as we're told in the narration. And basically all I understood were there are three central characters. Uh, one is this pyromaniac hedonist who causes a lot of trouble in the city of Ash and is celebrated for it. Like they are basically the rock star of this future city. And, um, they set fires around town and burn down buildings. They uh, do these like fisting shows at local nightclubs that are becoming more and more perverse and less and less um, coherent <laughs> as their patrons like to tell them. And then um, they cause a lot of damage by like following their every whim from one set piece to another. They directly harm a cartoonist who is a sort of reclusive artist but she has to go out of her little writing shack when she finds out that the pyromaniac has burned her printing press down. Um, so like her means of making comics is no longer viable. So she goes out in the world to get her revenge on this pyromaniac um, and tries to get into the nightclub where one of her like danceateria fisting shows is going on and um, gets in trouble with the bouncers who leave her for dead on the street, like beat her up and just like leave her in the gutter. And that's where we meet the third main character, who is this alien Terminator from another planet um, right. figure who like walks around the city sort of aimlessly and has this open-hearted empathy for human beings in a way that the pyromaniac does not. Uh, so she picks up the body of the cartoonist, brings her home to her apartment, kind of like a wet kitten in the rain, you know, just gonna like nurse her back to health. And uh, it turns out that the Terminator alien is main romantic partners with the uh, hedonist pyromaniac. 
Um, and they have this like kind of push and pull back and forth domestic squabble um, about what to do about this cartoonist and just about empathy in general. Like it's kind of said that in the future, the kind and the empathetic will not survive, or at least that's the thought. Uh, but it's kind of proven wrong that like the pyromaniac burns too many bridges, um, literally and figuratively. Uh, and that like, she's kind of outlived by the other two figures in the movie. Now, that's pretty vague, and I think that counts for maybe the first 40 minutes of what happens. Um, I don't understand anything else. I, I From there, I feel like characters die and come to, back to life like without any sense of internal logic. Yeah. And characters sort of cryptically read poetry about nature and humanity and kindness uh, in a way that I feel like I'm supposed to get how one event leads to the other, but I, I don't have any clearer understanding of the last hour or 40 minutes than just sort of like a vague sketch. Yeah. I mean, it kind of sounds like you got it. Uh, <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so to me, let me explain what I, what I understood. Oh, we should do this Rashomon style. Explain oh my what God. The, the plot was. The plot was. All right. So to me, this is a movie about a woman who is a comic book artist. And she learns from a, a friend named Marguerite, I believe is the person's name that the recent like pyroman pyromaniacal destruction of the place that prints her comics was done by this hedonist nonsense person who um, reminded me of, of the woman from Kamikaze hearts. Like it was just yeah. her, but in yeah. the post apocalypse, big Sharon Mitchell energy for sure. Where oh, it's yeah. just like everything is all about her. Everything is all about like how edgy she can be and how much of a performance she can put on and, you know, go to these like dance sessions where she goes on stage and gets in a sling and then things happen to her. But it's like all for her like greater glorification of her own edge lordiness, which is, as you know, my least favorite thing always, which was why Kamikaze Hearts was hard for me to watch. But in both movies, the movies are, like, not celebrating that ultimately. That's, like, yeah. the initial thing that happens, and then it's critiqued. Right. And this one reminded me also of Born in Flames, um, in that DIY aesthetic where also it kind of doesn't oh, completely yeah, yeah, make sense. Oh, yeah, DIY future. Born in Flames makes sense to me, though, in the way that this one does it. Mm -hmm. This one, I, I don't know. I think that I was just entranced enough by all of the like miniature work in this, which is fantastic. Oh, and there's so, so much of it. It's the best thing that happens in this movie is how many miniatures there are and how they like move around and they do like overhead shots of it. Like I would yeah, just watch that. Me and that. you were just like tiny things, tiny things. Yes. Like I would watch a movie, like uh, like an hour and a half of that alone with voiceover. And I think the fact that like that helped me understand more of what was happening than what was actually like had characters in it, you know, does speak to like how nonsensical this movie is. But, you know, then this comic book artist, uh, it turns out that her friend who told her about it is also like the driver and like the manager. Yeah. And lover of this like nonsense hedonist person who happens to be in a relationship with an alien Terminator from outer space who never takes her boots off. And I wouldn't who either. They're might great also boots. be a vampire. Yeah. Some neck sucking late. In the I film. think that that vampire is a different 
character. Like there's a it, when you watch the credits, there is someone who is credited as vampire. Vampire, yeah. But again, you know, I'm not gonna um, pretend that like I really understood this movie, you know, fully and completely, and like I have a, the definitive answer like of what the canon of this film is. You mostly, I mostly understood it the way that you did, Brandon. Except that I thought, you know, um, I found the alien terminators eating of various like rubber animals to be the funniest part of the movie oh yeah i really enjoyed all of that purposefully funny too like they'll focus on a little rodent creature that's like achieved with stop motion animation and like very cheap like rubber manipulations of um various bladders and stuff yeah yeah like diy homemade practical effects um, and it's supposed to be kind of a goofy moment when she like bites the head off of one of those things and it sparks at her, or uh, she, later she cooks at home. Oh yeah, the, for her uh, partner a the uh, rat bomb. Oh, well, I was thinking the rat of the bomb, alligator. But, like, the, the rubber alligator, yeah, yeah. Oh, which okay. I have hanging in my kitchen wall. <laughs> she just torches it like a with a with a creme brulee torch. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, that's great. Um, I love that this movie did seem to be like intentionally, like I feel like we've watched many movies in this vein where the um, fact that you couldn't really understand what was happening was an unintentional byproduct of not really knowing what they were doing. Whereas this one, it does feel more like an intentional element of nonsense where it's like, yeah, this is a narrative of the future. If you are of the present, then you can't really expect to fully comprehend it. You are frustrating me so much. (laughs) (laughs) That's so untrue. Like, like Born in Flames is a movie that's like a call to arms and is like getting people excited to burn down buildings and collectively come together and like build a future. And this feels like, nonsensical in an unintentional way mm-hmm. it feels like there is a plot and there is a storyline that's just not communicated well that was my feelings too so i as i said i saw it as kind of like talking about survival um so specifically you know obviously there's a lot of like post-world war ii looking and like 80s 90s looking like austrian stuff going on and so it felt very much like remnant of that sort of political era and sort of like the idea of how living in a terrible place makes you a terrible person sometimes is something I kind of got out of it in a way. Like, like I said, I only got, I got vibes. Like I understood what was going on. Yes. But ultimately, like I thought the plot was kind of dropped at a point in my opinion, but um the vibes I got were very much like about survival and how sometimes when you survive and you're in a terrible place, you become some sort of terrible person, either, you know, a hedonist that doesn't care or, you know, a alien terminator, which I'm not pro alien terminator here, actually. Like, I think the alien terminator is a little weird and it felt very necrophilic at one point. So, you know, I I thought it was kind of a story about living in terrible places, making you a terrible person, essentially. And kind of the effects of, like, political turmoil and war, etc. I think we're talking about two different things. Like, I get a general vibe from the movie. And I should clarify that I like this movie. I just really didn't think 
I understood it enough to like fully critique it or even share it with other people. <laughs> but uh, the vibe and the meaning are, you know, one thing versus like the literal sequence of events yeah. in the third act yeah. are incomprehensible to me. Yeah. Once we realize what the domestic situation is, and then, you know, they dump the cartoonist body like at the bottom of a literal dump, but then she comes back to life. And the uh, hedonist character also dies and then comes back to life as this ghost that no one will interact with. And then there's this funeral march over the end credits for what appears to be like an empty coffin. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's purposefully nonsensical, like in a Dadaist kind of way. But it didn't really feel that way to me. I felt like there was like a sequence of things happening. Like I, I wasn't getting like Unshun on from this. I was getting like DIY the Terminator, but I didn't really get what the A to B to C progression of the story was. Yeah. Is that uncommon for, for some of these? I guess what maybe I get um, one over by with this kind of filmmaking is like exuberance and momentum so that there, is, there are times where I'll drop caring about the progression of the plot. And like this movie starts off with a fucking bang. Like it's got this incredible mm-hmm. live action zine kind of look to it where um the pyromaniac all of a sudden turns in this black and white xeroxed copy of herself that like falls through the scrolling backdrop of like hand-colored zine prints yeah that was like an 80s music video i love that part looked incredible the cartoonist is in this gothic kind of like backdrop in yeah room where there's like these like insane lightning strikes outside her window that were almost like ken russell's movie gothic in particular and like you were saying, the miniature work on the establishing shots of the city uh, looks really cool. And it looks like it was made on someone's like kitchen table. Uh, so it's got this kind of like DIY exuberance to it. But once that momentum slows down and like all that's happening is plot and like there's maybe a couple stop motion shots of a hand crawling across a surgery table or uh, one of those like little rubber creatures on the ground it just really like loses that momentum so that I have to like focus on what people are doing and saying, and I can't make sense of it. I will say there are many shots in this movie that take for fucking ever. Yeah. There's there's an, there is an editing problem happening here where they're like a movie is 90 minutes. And there are many scenes where they let the camera roll for like two or three times longer than is needed to establish what they're trying to establish. And I understand how frustrating that can be and like make it more difficult to get into this. Like I just happened to be luckily in a very slow mood when I saw this. If I hadn't been, I wouldn't have the positive feeling that I do. So you you like this movie more than Born in Flames is what I'm hearing. I regret to inform you that my answer is yes. What? That's wild. That is wild. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you've been trained better to enjoy this stuff like since you saw first saw born in flames like yeah I, that I was five years ago and it. i've been i've been like um exposed enough now that maybe <laughs> maybe like if i had seen it now instead of five years ago after years of like this clockwork orange treatment of being forced to watch these movies <laughs> Maybe I would enjoy it. Yeah, more. I'm like really surprised by your reaction to the, this movie because I was expecting you to be like, "Ugh, Brandon." So you know, I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Maybe there's something wrong in my brain, where when Brandon was like, "Oof, you're gonna hate this," my brain was like, "We're Fuck gonna you. enjoy this," yeah. to, just to prove a point that it's not entirely impossible that that happened. 
I heard your voice in my head when the like bar owner at the nightclub tells the pyromaniac, uh, I need you to cut down your perverted obsessions. Yes. I was like, that's Boomer to me watching this movie. <laughs> that was one of the best lines ever, by the way. I enjoyed the experience of watching this. I just like also in the back of my head was like, oh, this is not like totally there. It's like you have to like kind of lean in and look for what they were trying to do. Yeah. Uh, which I think does fall apart in the last act, but like, who cares? This is like a bunch of art weirdos making cheap art for like nobody. Like, I don't think this was supposed to be seen by this many people in the first place. Okay, I, I guess maybe here's a point where we make some confessions. Okay, um, at least on my part. Now, I don't know that I have talked about this on the podcast. I can't even remember if I've told the two of you, but I have participated in like some recent like DIY comedy stuff on. Uh, local public access television that my former roommate has been doing and i have seen firsthand in this room how you can have some people who are not professionals rub up against each other in a way that creates um creative differences let's say uh that definitely find their way into the work and you kind of when you're doing it you're hoping that doesn't end up being the case And it really feels like that did happen here. Like while watching this, I'm like, it feels like, you know, the people playing maybe Spy and um, the Hedonist were like, oh, you're going to play this character as as an alien Terminator. Uh, Okay. I mean, I don't think that I agree. And then they just went with it. And so it's a mishmash of all of these different participants' ideas. And there is not necessarily the crystallized, focused idea of a single director. Because it clearly does have, you know, it even says that it has two of the people who are the stars are also the directors. So I feel like some of what we're seeing that is the confusion is the result of creative differences behind the camera and neither being willing to compromise. And I think that that's, to me, when I'm seeing that on screen, it can be more interesting than maybe something that uh, did not have that same troubled production, but is just as like actually dull on screen. Mm. I, I don't see the difference between that and Kamikaze Hearts, where like that is on the surface and very much what the movie's about. Yeah, there's like three women collaborating on this project, and then disagreeing about what it was supposed to be, and then like kind of falls apart. And at the end, they're like have to be honest about what they were making in a way that's like very alarming, and you know disarming but you know kamikaze hearts didn't have uh diy futurescape science fiction images of like uh little tiny dirt trucks yeah Yeah, i mean that that does a lot of work that does a lot of work i'm not going (laughs) to pretend like it doesn't yeah i also will say and you might hate this too possibly even more one of the things that i didn't care about in um Born in Flames, as well as um, what was the other one with the woman? She had the checkerboard skirt. Uh, Smithereens. Smithereens is that that is a particular kind of punk music that I'm not into. Oh, mm. oh that's a problem. That's for me. a problem. And that, <laughs> that being problem. omnipresent in those in Smithereens, it being omnipresent in Born in Flames, whereas this didn't have like the same musical qualities, and I'll call them qualities that those films did. So it didn't take me out of it where I'm like, I'm having a miserable Sonic experience as well. I will never be able to relate to that because the music and the filmmaking are like one and the same. And I, I love them say. for that. I get it. And I'm not saying that I don't recognize the validity of it, but it's not for me. What I'm saying is like, it's an ethos and not 
a um, question of quality. It's like a question of method. Sure, yeah. This entire project and like what I'm connecting to, and I'm actually looking for this in all art I ever engage with. It's like uh, human fingerprints on the final project and like knowing that it is straight from someone's id and also democratized so that like anyone can do it. And that's what DIY yeah. art is. It's like democratizing the means of making the art in the first place and inspiring people who feel locked out for, you know, not having quote unquote like skill mm -hmm. or like training in like a proper setting to be able to make art and distribute it on the same level as, you know, basically millionaire institutions that control most of what gets out there. So there's more room for people to express ideas with these instruments that are, they're usually locked away from. So like there are amazing songs that have been written from people who can barely play guitar. Yes, and, uh, and it's it. incredible to hear them just sort of get up there and like push through that barrier um, and find out new ways to make music. And the filmmaking is the exact same way. It's like these people are not formally trained and they cannot afford like the best equipment but they're going out there and making something, you know, meaningful to them and usually something with like a clear objective uh, that like pushes through the skill barrier. And I, I really do look for that in like all art. I'm always looking for art to be punk <laughs> in a way that like that, that is alienating to hear that like if you don't like that kind of music, I, I don't know what that means. Like I, that, that is, oh that is God. like good yeah, art to the end of our fellowship. No, no, not at all. The fellowship is broken because, and look again, I'm, I'm not making any apologies for being who I am when I say this, but I understand that that's not everyone's ethos. And that in fact, y'all's might be purer and more punk. And in fact, probably it is, but like for me, there's so much more happening in this one. There's so much more attempt to do something. Like, it doesn't have a clear thesis, uh, admittedly. Whereas, like, Smithereens and Kamikaze Hearts and, like, um, Born in Flames, those do have clear theses. And I feel like I'm acting against my normal methodology here by saying, like, this one, because it had so much more and there was so much more attempt to do something... This was a movie that was full of ideas, full of them, but none of them adhered to a singular thesis, whereas those movies have a singular thesis, but I, I find myself, I find it difficult for me to connect with them emotionally, which is often the thing that I'm looking for. If I'm not going to, I have to connect with something intellectually or emotionally, and I just didn't with those, whereas this one, there is something about this DIY and like really the like very detailed like there's so much filigree in this movie and i think that that's what really drew me in even if like the narrative uh doesn't make a whole lot of sense and what the purpose of the movie is is completely unclear i guess i enjoyed the one thing about this that it seems like doesn't matter as much to you as like that punk ethos is what i think makes this movie an interesting curio and like worthy of restoration and you know discussion yeah. is like the fact that someone made a terminator movie with no money <laughs> well yeah. about like queer people fucking and dancing in the future yeah everything beyond that i don't know that it has a ton of ideas like that's actually like confusing to me because i don't know what its ideas are 
other than like I just mean I- ideas for like individual set pieces, yeah, not like okay. larger conceptual ideas. Right. It's like you know more ideas about like oh, wouldn't it be great if we had a scene where we eat a rubber alligator? Wouldn't it be great if we had a scene where we rolled a body downhill and it ended up in like a flower patch that brought the body back to life? And I feel like if the movie was nothing but that and just like crazy, you know, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about daisies. Uh, the Czech New Wave film. Yes. Like, if the movie was like that, where it's just nonstop rampant energy, and I feel feel like that movie's very punk in its um, approach it to is. filmmaking. Cool. And in its politics. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, if it was that, like, nonstop momentum of, like, oh, let's try this, let's try that, um, I would be saying this is, like, a five-star lost classic instead of, like, I don't want to put a star rating on it, but, like, instead of, like, you know, something I enjoyed but also had a lot of, you know head scratching to do as it kind of narratively fell apart, but felt like it was still trying to tell a story that it just flat out didn't get. Yeah. I feel like, and maybe this is just like opposite day for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I enjoyed this movie as much as y'all did. Which I get because I was kind of on the fence about it myself. Like I, there's so much I love about it and so much that I just like, don't even know how to respond to because I don't know what it's trying to do. Yeah. It's a hard place to come from as an audience. I think it's intent matters, yeah. you know, this kind of thing. It does. And once again, like, usually I'm like, okay, whatever. I don't know what the story is here. But I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, it's opposite day. I'm glad this one's going to end up on the Swamp Flicks canon. Will it? No, I don't know. I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't feel that strongly about it. But I, you know, I did enjoy it quite a lot. You know, and and speaking of it, you know, within this miasma of all of the other things that we've talked about, I feel like almost in a way, this one's weird, like outlandish sci-fi and it's like miniatures and everything. It gives it a real um, kind of like knife and heart feeling to me almost where it's like, uh, yeah, it might not hold together completely narratively, but like as a sequence of events, I really enjoy each of the set pieces, although it, it clearly doesn't approach the magnificence of Knife and Heart. I think what it had me thinking about was like more like my own movie watching habits than like the movie itself. So maybe it just left me too much time to think because there's there's a lot of like room to breathe. That That is present. I, yeah. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and make a recommendation to our listeners that I think maybe you can cut this out. If this is psychopathic, you can cut it out. <laughs> Criterion allows for you to adjust the speed at which you're watching something. Boo! I think that Boo you could this watch man. this one at... Okay. <laughs> I think you could watch this at 1.5 and maybe enjoy it more. No. Okay. All right. I Look, I wouldn't... I wouldn't... I don't think I've ever made this recommendation about any other piece of media ever. And so maybe I'm losing my mind, and that was a psychopathic recommendation. You can cut this if you want. But it was just something that crossed my mind. I think you need to engage with it with its flaws and all. I don't think every movie has to be perfect to be worth engaging with. Like It definitely drags in the back half, but like you kind of need to know that <laughs> and, and like absorb that. But it did leave me room to think. And I've been thinking a lot about how we like have been doing this for a very long time now. And I'm just flat out of movie recommendations. Like, out of things that I've seen in the past, you've either heard me already praise it, or, you know, someone else has already gotten there. I've been thinking a lot about how uh, Ed Wood's Glenn or Glenda is getting um, these, like, Pride Month screenings all around the world right now, and, like, being celebrated as one of the greatest movies of all time in, like, the trans canon. And I... 
am hitting a wall where it's like, yes, that is also one of my favorite movies. And I've nothing left to champion. Like, that was like the last one in the bucket. And I've got nothing left to offer the world. Except to dig into what curators who do this stuff full time and like dig up these like lost treasures are putting on platforms like Criterion. And if you live in a major city uh, in like repertory theaters or like this is a golden age for movie nerds right now. We're like there's stuff on physical media, on your local big screens, on streaming that like would have been so hard to find decades ago, like impossible to get your hands Mm -hmm. on. And now I'm scrambling to catch up with all this like cool DIY stuff that had shitty distribution when I was younger. And now it's just like out there and available. And I, I see this exact scenario playing out in my head in the future where it's like, I already have two or three more criterion streaming movies that are like low budget weirdo oddities that I very much want to see but don't really have a lot of personal free time to watch in between all these like podcast projects that we do. And it's like, I'm probably going to make y'all watch more of these. Perfect. And for the first time, I welcome it. <laughs> that is blowing my Yay. mind. More than else right now. I, I really did not expect you to find it pleasant at all. I was going to say, I was expecting to go into this conversation with you being like, why did you do this to me? <laughs> so I'm very excited for you, Boomer, for finally like connecting with one of these. Maybe the trick from now on, Brandon, to get me to like these is to like lowball, like mm, I kind of didn't, I was kind of disappointed early on. And then that way, the like <laughs> obsessive part of my brain that's like ready to create conflict for no reason will once again really enjoy <laughs> like a movie that you downplayed. And then you're like, you pull the rug out from under me and you're like, actually, now we're going to talk about how much we both love it. And then, Allie, I really would love to see what the third like prong is on that because I like <laughs> I like your wild card element. Thank you. I, I try. To clarify, I didn't say I didn't enjoy it. I said I don't know what I watched, which I think still stands. I, I could not give you a full plot description of this film. You, you gave it, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I don't believe myself, I guess. <laughs> My confidence yeah. level is in the trash today. Well, I'm I'm here I'm here to gas you up, man. <laughs> okay, great. Ah, <laughs> uh, damn. Well, speaking of scarcity and the Criterion channel, we're talking about Ernst Lubitsch next episode. And all of Lubitsch's stuff just left Criterion. <laughs> so like we picked all these movies that were like readily available, and then like the next day they're gone. And these are not obscure Austrian lesbian sci-fi movies made with no budget in the 90s. These are like classic old Hollywood movies that everyone loves. They're all five-star, you know, amazing, you know, reinvented the art form and it's time films that are just like not commercially available whatsoever right now. Unless you go to like archive.org or your local public library, you can pick up one or two here or there. But like, this really is a scarcity problem where it's all access-based and... Something is on Criterion for a brief period of time, and they're doing very adventurous programming. So it's making us take bigger risks, I think, in uh, what we select for the show. It's a lot of fun. It's fun, yeah. Yeah, it's big gambles. Mm